Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... We've seen people um, believe this story and believe that it happened, um, and we've seen people use it to, to justify the indiscriminate targeting of civilians um, in Gaza. We have a look at the spread of misinformation about the conflict in Israel and Gaza. Research reveals young people in Australia are feeling financially worse off than their parents. Also, the biggest issue facing any Indigenous business is access to capital. It's a wicked problem for Indigenous businesses to try and get capital to grow their business. Indigenous-owned businesses are finding support in connecting with one another. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Misinformation and fake news has significantly impacted the public's understanding of the Israel and Gaza conflict, leading to confusion among the general public. The dissemination of false information, such as the unfounded claim of Israeli baby decapitations by Hamas or unverified videos on social media, could potentially have severe consequences. Given potential biases in mainstream media, it raises questions about the role of misinformation in shaping public opinion. I spoke to Dr. Nasha Buffen, a senior lecturer in journalism at La Trobe University, about the need for better regulations on social media platforms to prevent the spread of false information. The European Union has come out warning um, Elon Musk and X uh, of disinformation spread on the social media platform, uh, which could see it shut down potentially in EU uh, countries and Elon Musk fined. Should there be a better regulation in regard to policing misinformation on social media platforms? It's incredibly difficult to police um, regulation of social media platforms because the legal system is always playing catch up. Right. So when um, more than 50 Muslims in New Zealand were massacred, um, at Christchurch by an Australian terrorist that, I mean, that was live streamed. And so all of the sanctions and the punishments that you could level at Meta had to be after the fact, right? So this it really sucks that all of this sort of stuff is reactionary because the material is out there. And I have seen people literally announce that they're, they're going to take a break because they've just seen the worst videos possible coming out. And I honestly don't know what the answer is because the infrastructure is there to put this stuff live um, for, for anybody to see. Um, certainly, I think that in the case of X, formerly known as, as Twitter, um, all these media companies, they are quite arbitrary um, and it's almost like whack-a-mole. So they're waiting for people to sort of report this content as too graphic, report this content as distressing. And then they're very arbitrary about removing that content, right? And so... Uh, I certainly think that X should be held to the same standards as the other social media companies. And we know that when Musk took over, he actually fired all of the safety people, all of the people responsible for monitoring this at Twitter. Uh, And that's certainly something, the process is fraught with inconsistency, but um, Musk and X have to adhere to the process. Um, And so that's the area that I think that um, the EU can really hit him is by pointing to uh, Facebook and pointing to Instagram, well, they're both the same thing, but pointing to alternatives and saying, well, they haven't fired their 
um, you know, their safety and their uh, moderation teams and you have, right? And so um, that at least goes, you know, that at least is a step in the in the right direction. The news that was um, spread across uh, media and spoken in politics uh, was the decapitation of Israeli babies um, by Hamas. There was no evidence or footage to back the claim and the Israeli military debunked it. Uh, what are the consequences of misinformation of that nature towards the general public's perspective? So in the past, these sorts of claims would be very difficult to dispute, right? They'd be very difficult to dispute because uh, it was really just one way, okay? So you had um, people in authority speaking to the media. The media would then write it down or take footage of the person speaking, edit it, and it would go out on the nightly news or the next day's paper. And there was no time to dispute that. In this day and age, you can dispute this sort of stuff in real time, right? So um, straight away, again, it was it was journalists from traditional news organizations who first raised doubts about it. Okay, so they were actually the ones who first raised doubts about it, but those doubts then continued to be raised by ordinary citizens on social media. Uh, one of the reasons those doubts were um, raised is because the reporter who made the claim on who originally made the claim on um, Israel's channel, I think it was 12 or four, right? So on, on an Israeli TV channel, the reporter who originally made the claim cited um, an Israeli government source, but there was no footage to support that. There was no evidence of it. Um, and because they were being questioned and because both uh, journalists from traditional media as well as social media users were all saying, this is a pretty horrific claim, um, but do you have any evidence to back it up? And because they were being questioned, that's when they decided to release the very graphic um, footage um, to sort of try and lend credence to it. But it's worthy to, to note at this stage that there still hasn't been any um, confirmation, there been, hasn't been any um, you know, evidence of, uh, of these claims. And I think part of the danger of this is that that simply adds to the process of um, dehumanization of the other that has existed for a long time um, in a lot of conflicts, but especially with regard uh, to this one, because we've seen we've seen people um, believe this story and believe that it happened, um, and we've seen people use it to to justify the indiscriminate targeting of civilians um, in Gaza, because people conflate Hamas with. Palestinians, right? They don't understand or, or don't care to know that, um, you know, when they won that election in 2006, I think they uh, they managed to get like 40% of the vote, right? Um, it's a very deeply unpopular um, leadership within, um, within Gaza. And so they conflate the two. And so the process of misinformation like this is to say, these people are beyond redemption. Who on earth would behead a baby? Right. And so the danger of that is um, when people conflate, when they believe the rumour and then they conflate um, the Hamas leadership with the ordinary uh, Palestinian civilians, they then think, OK, so those, these people are barbaric. They're not, you know, they're not humans, they're animals. And so Israel has free reign to try and protect itself. So that's the danger of, of some of this. That was uh, Dr. Nasha Buffin, a senior lecturer in journalism at La Trobe University, speaking to The Wire. 
Researchers at Monash University are looking into a link between how insecure work affects young Australian school pathways and employment. The research shows that many young people face financial worries, engage in gig work and deal with anxiety while striving for stability in their job market. I spoke to Professor Lucas Walsh, the Director of Monash Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice, on the need for connected approach to address these issues. Uh, we've seen this figure year on year because this isn't the first version of the barometer. We see large proportions of young people feeling that they'll be worse off than their parents. Look, they're growing up in deeply uncertain times. Everything from disruptions brought about by the pandemic to widespread changes within the labour force mean that the pathways that they're following are not necessarily as linear or straight as their parents. But at the same time, we're also seeing a shift in wealth and an exclusion of many people from entering things like the housing market. And so the idea of those pathways leading to a secure home, perhaps family, seem less likely on the horizons of many young Australians. And how does participation in gig economy influence young uh, people's perspective on on education and their future? Well, it's 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 a growing influence. It's not necessarily a major influence yet. We'll we'll see young people, particularly those that we're interested in within the barometer, which is those that are eighteen to twenty four years old, typically take up casual, short, part time, and gig work during, for example, their studies because it affords them flexibility uh, and because it, it it allows them to bring in an income. At the same time, we see young people juggling quite serious responsibilities of multiple jobs while studying or training. This is, I think, starting to become an issue because they're, they're some of them are buckling under the pressure of juggling those things. So there's one element of, of, of gig work that's that's enticing. It's It's flexible and perhaps why certain groups within the barometer tended to do gig work more, such as those with a disability. It affords flexibility, but at the same time, it doesn't have the same securities and protections as regular work where you're employed as an employee and not as a contractor or treated as self-employed. So a lot of the entitlements, wage protections aren't necessarily there for gig work. But what we're arguing in the report is that there is a rise of insecure work in general. The fact that uh, careers and job pathways aren't the same as what they used to be leads us to think that gig work is a reflection of something much deeper, you know, a shift in the workforce and in the working lives of young people. And what are some of the challenges and anxieties that young Australians are facing when it comes to school pathways, um, particularly in terms of, um, you know, get, gaining secure housing in the future? There's a couple of trends going on that that I think are worth noting. Uh, so firstly, we're actually seeing a slow decline, very slow, but, but perceptible decline in the number of young people completing school. And this is not good. The data really strongly suggests that those who complete year 12 or equivalent will fare better in life across a range of indicators. So some are going out into work and juggling multiple jobs. There was a report from the Smith family earlier this year that highlighted those from disadvantaged backgrounds are working as hard as ever, but often in multiple jobs. And what happens is that if you go out into work without further qualifications or completing school, 
your income is likely to flatline. It's less likely to grow over time. And in an increasingly competitive workforce, these qualifications really matter. A final point I'd make is that the relationship between higher qualifications and desirable secure work is breaking down. That is that this belief that, you know, if you obtain higher qualifications, you're more likely to earn more and, and have a bit more choice in work seems less likely in the current workforce. So this poses challenges. You know, what's the point of education? Uh, what what is it going to lead to satisfying work? And uh, Professor, what would you recommend um, in addressing young people's issue regarding financial stability and um, housing? Well, at a, at a federal level, we we need urgent urgent policy intervention in what is an inflated housing market that's pricing young people out of affordable accommodation. That's the the first thing, you know, and and we expected there to be changes in the housing market when the pandemic happened, but that didn't happen. And in fact, you know, rental and home ownership is increasingly out of reach for young people. And is you know, it's a really basic question. Is this the kind of society we want to live in? where even those who are working hard and trying to get ahead don't have access to the basic fundamentals of life, these rudimentary things like secure accommodation. That was Professor Lucas Walsh speaking to The Wire. You're listening to The Wire, independent and current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur in Melbourne. A big hello to our listeners in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. And to our friends in Noosa on Noosa FM 101.3. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Gula Ri in Broome, Western Australia. A 47-year-old veterinarian, Dr. Colette Harmson, says she will get back into activism after being released from prison in Tasmania. She was freed on the weekend after being held in prison for three months. Following her arrest in July for attempting to protect one of the state's native forests. She explained how she came to be in prison when she shared her story on her release with Sean O'Shaughnessy from the Environmental As Anything podcast on River FM. I've been uh, pretty active with like, nonviolent direct action for about 17 years now uh, and uh, have been arrested over 20 times for peaceful environmental protest. Most of those arrests have been locking on to machinery or gates or blocking roads to stop work in areas of forest where they are logging uh, native forests, forests that are special to many endangered species, but also just home to all the fantastic native wildlife that we, uh, we call our own Tassie special wildlife. And so that's a, a you know a, a big commitment over a long time. And 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 what so what was it the specific event that uh, that brought you to where you are today? Well, I guess it was a cumulative effect of all the you know continued um, arrests in Tassie forests. I I feel like uh, the government is spectacularly ignoring um, really good science and uh, really good scientists who have have shown irrefutably that we are doing the wrong thing when it comes to climate and one of the ways that we can protect and help our climate is to protect forests 
And so I um, I decided that uh, because the scientists were being ignored, um, something a little bit more stronger and uh, heavy-handed needed to be done. And I guess that was uh, that's where I got involved in putting my body on the line to try and um, physically stop these um, vandalism acts in the forest from going ahead. And so it was uh, it was mining in Tasmania's northwest that you were actually arrested for protesting on this latest occasion, wasn't it? Yeah, so in Takaina Tarkine, um, there's fantastic rainforest there that blow your mind away if you ever get to see it. And um, basically they're planning to dig open-cut mining pits to retrieve um, minerals out of the um, out of mountainous areas covered in ancient rainforest and uh, I'm outraged that they would even contemplate doing that. The effect would be um, permanent and disgusting for the landscape and uh, so yeah I decided to take a stand with all my um, activist colleagues and um, stop work there. The magistrate said that you would no doubt learn a lesson from your imprisonment. Can you tell us what lessons you've taken away from your period in t- inside uh, the, the, the jail? Yeah, yeah, I've had a uh, um, fairly long amount of time to think hard about um, rehabilitation and that sort of thing. I think it's pretty obvious that uh, people don't really uh, get rehabilitated in the in the jail system. Um, I think if they did, they'd be less reoffending, but also uh, environmental activists like myself, they'd probably have to try and force me to stop caring about the environment in order to rehabilitate me. Which and, obviously they didn't do. I mean, you've, you've spent a, a lot of time. You haven't just been a protester. As I said earlier, you are a vet. And you've also you've worked for eight years uh, in the, uh, the Tasmanian government's Save the Tasmanian Devil program. Uh, yes. You know, you, 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 you are a scientist. What do you think uh, is the disconnect here in, in Tasmania and in Australia? Why are, is not the, the scientific argument being listened to by our government? Basically, I think um, the governments just want that uh, jobs and growth approach to pretty much everything. And if, if they uh, continue with that kind of um, attitude, then we're going to uh, have some major crime, climate change uh, implications. How does it actually feel to be, to be out and to be free? I mean, I feel a little bit like I'm dreaming. I don't really feel like I've woken up and gotten out of bed yet. Mm-hmm. All my fantastic supporters were there with me in Parliament lawns and it was warming and beautiful to be with them all. And uh, they made a song about doing it for the forests and it was, you know, really lovely. And so um, I'll just have to uh, take baby steps and work out how to, how to be a responsible adult in the real world. Uh, and get back into activism. That was Sean O'Shaughnessy from the Environmental As Anything podcast on River FM, speaking to The Wire. Indigenous-owned businesses are flourishing and becoming essential in many sectors. But sometimes getting supply for First Nations businesses is challenging without support. An organisation called Supply Nation is helping the industry connect with Indigenous businesses to diversify their supply. The Wise Eduardo asks CEO of Supply Nation, Kate Russell, at the Asia-Pacific Cities Summit in Brisbane how they connect businesses. 
Supply Nation is Australia's leading database of certified Indigenous businesses. So we partner with our members, they might be corporate organisations, they might be non-profit organisations or government agencies, and we help them fulfil the procurement targets and aspirations by connecting them with Indigenous businesses around the country. Uh, last financial year we had about $4 billion spent from our corporate members to Indigenous businesses. So how did Supply Nation begin its operations? So we've been around since about 2009. We were established by Michael McLeod, who is a very well-known Indigenous businessman, and it's actually based on an American model. And funnily enough, next week we are actually going back to the mothership, back to Baltimore in the States for the NMSDC Supply Diversity Conference. It's grown obviously since 2009 and we now have a global alliance, the Global Su Supplier Diversity Alliance, um, with countries like South Africa, India, United Kingdom, America and the Maori in, in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Now, uh, I just did a little bit of research on, on your website and uh, First Nation businesses can register or can be certified. What's the main difference between these two? So to be a registered business, you have to be at least 50% owned by an Indigenous person. But to be certified, you have to be 51% or more essentially owned, operated and controlled. So it, there's quite a rigorous process that we go through to make sure that a business that is claiming to be an Indigenous business really is Indigenous and that there are people involved in every aspect of the business rather than just uh, in name only. And what other benefits do First Nation businesses have when they're certified? We see that the majority of our spend that comes from our member organisation actually goes to certified businesses. They get a certain accreditation, it's like a logo that they get to display and I think for them it makes them more attractive to our member organisations because our member organisations therefore know that when they are spending their money on a certified Indigenous business that it has gone through quite a rigorous process and that there is real integrity in, in that cohort. So they are more, I guess, more appealing. Very excellent. Now, uh, we've seen a growth in First Nation businesses across Australia and mostly in metropolitan areas. Um, how are Indigenous-owned businesses doing in regional areas and what challenges they face, do you think? We are seeing more and more Indigenous businesses getting set up in regional and remote areas and I think a lot of that is to do with COVID. We've seen people move away from metropolitan areas and it's the same with Indigenous businesses. A lot of those logistical issues have been broken down. The biggest issue facing any Indigenous business is access to capital. It's a wicked problem for Indigenous businesses to try and get capital to grow their business. There are some organisations doing quite some interesting things out there to try and offset that problem. For an Indigenous business that wants to get a large contract, they might need the capital, they need the money, to the capital to invest in bigger machinery or to bring on extra staff. But it's a like a vicious cycle. It's a chicken and an egg. How do you afford to invest in your business until you get the contract? But you can't get the bigger contracts because you can't afford to invest in your business. So I think that is the biggest problem facing any Indigenous business. Also on your website, uh, it mentions that you have more than 750 members, so well done, congratulations. Could you please give us a quick example on how a member grows their supplier diversity with you? It's very diverse in how they might do that. We have some members like Commonwealth Bank that have been with us since the get-go. They are 
very sophisticated, they have processes, they have systems, they are you know, at one end of the spectrum, but we also have some member organisations that are small architectural firms with maybe three people working in them. It's a very different journey for both those organisations. What we are trying to encourage is not only for those organisations to focus on spending money, because absolutely that is, that is the purpose of our business is to encourage people to spend with Indigenous businesses, but there are other ways that organisations can give back. They can give back by building the capability of Indigenous organisations and their suppliers. They can give back through employment. They can give back through mentoring or providing access to capital through things like, you know, rent to buy for mining machinery. So there's no one size fits all. But when you become a member organisation with us, you get a relationship manager and that person gets to know you. They get to know the business. What are your targets? What are your categories of spend? Where are your areas? areas of operating and they work with you as a partner to help you through the journey. Kate Russell, CEO of Supply Nation, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to the Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.